um, few minutes together, and it's your word that's true. As we just read in Psalm 130, I pray that that's true for us, that our hope is in your word. There's nothing I can add to your word. If anything, if I add to it, it makes it weaker. It waters it down. But God, I pray that your word transforms us, your word convicts us, your word encourages us, and your word reminds us of the love that we've received in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We're so thankful that the promises for Israel, what we read in Psalm 30, is true for us. That because of Christ, you have blotted out our iniquities. That we've been forgiven of our sins, and that we can stand before you as broken vessels called holy and righteous because of what Jesus did, not because of anything we do. So we just praise you, Jesus. We thank you. And I just pray, Lord, that I'm in tune with your spirit this morning. I pray that you uh, just protect what words come out of my mouth, that I just speak only your truth, Lord, and, and that, again, I don't go outside of your word, and your word, it's just your word alone. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, I'm thankful for an opportunity, opportunity to preach. Um, I've been watching a show on Netflix, and Stephanie's going to roll her eyes because I think sometimes she likes it, but other times she's like, really? Uh, I always struggle on Netflix to find something to watch. Sometimes I feel like I scroll longer than it takes to just watch something. I used to just watch The Office, but they took that off, and I would just watch it on repeat. So now I have to find something new. And they finally released a new season of Forged in Fire. I don't know if you've ever heard of this show before or seen it. <clears throat> what it is, it's a competition where bladesmiths, or people who forge, blacksmiths, they forge weapons, and it's a competition. And something about it is just so like, unique and fun and, and addicting to watch. Just seeing these craftsmen, these blacksmiths, heat up metal and bang on it with a hammer and turn it into a knife, turn it into a weapon. And it reminded me of something in Proverbs 27, 17. This is what God's Word says. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And when you think about how swords are made and how weapons are forged, it's a violent, chaotic, sort of intense process. What they do is they're smashing iron, they're smashing metal against metal, and they're getting rid of all of the weak metal in the blade, and they're making it into something better, something stronger, something sharper. Now, there is a time at the end when they put it on the grinder and they start to get the small little details and they, they sharpen it that way, but the initial process of iron sharpening iron, they're sparks. It's not a, a nice, common process where you're like, oh, I'm going to get really nice and close and make sure I, I look at it. No, it, you'll get sparks in your eyes. It's, it's, it's hot metal. And it just reminded me of, of where I'm going with these next three weeks. Last week I preached about a church that's pleasing to God. This week I'll be preaching, and then next week I'll finish this three-week series. But it just reminded me of a few things. In order for us to be honest before the Lord, right, sometimes His Spirit convicts us. Sometimes His Spirit encourages us. But as we grow in our Christian walk and in our Christian faith, we should be getting sharper and sharper and it's not because of anything I say or anything you do, but it's because of God's Word. So last week I looked and I challenged us. What is a church that's pleasing to God looks like? There were five things we saw in the early church of Acts. They were a church that was devoted to God's Word, to fellowship, to communion, to prayer. They were devoted to unity. There was a spiritual oneness that only through the power of the Holy Spirit could happen. 
They're, they prioritized serving together. They served one another in a sacrificial way. They devoted themselves to meeting daily. They had fellowship, togetherness. And then lastly, they praised God together as His church. And as we discussed these characteristics last week, I had a challenge. I had a challenge for anybody who is a New Village Church attendee or member, or if you're visiting from another church, put your church to this test. Not my words, the God's word. How does our church stand against God's word, against his scripture? And we're looking at this because just because we say we're a church or churches have crosses on their buildings or they have the word church on them and they claim to worship God and they sing to God, it doesn't mean that God is automatically pleased with how they're worshiping. We looked at Malachi and we saw that God actually rejected Israel's worship because of multiple reasons, but the main one was this. They no longer feared God. They no longer kept his commandments. They made God sort of the the second best. They offered their second best to God, not their best. And we saw that God says, I'm going to reject your offering. Just because you give me something doesn't mean I'm automatically going to accept it. And this runs parallel to something that Jesus said, what came to mind as I was preparing, what Jesus said while he was preaching his Sermon on the Mount. If you want to turn there, it's just a few verses. It's Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Again, Jesus is preaching to the people listening. And this is what he says. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now Jesus says something extremely bold here. Right, don't overlook this. As the people are listening, they're probably not like, wow, that's, <laughs> thanks Jesus, that's real. That's a good word. Thank you so much. He's saying something extreme here. He's telling the people listening that not even the most righteous of spiritual good deeds, right, casting out demons, prophesying in his name, doing all these mighty works, that's not enough to get you into his kingdom. He actually calls, he calls the self-righteous works And the workers, he calls them, you workers of lawlessness or workers of the evil one. And the scary thing in verse 22, this is what he says, on that day, how many? Many, many will say. And many people get it wrong. Many people will be trusting in themselves and their good deeds and their righteous deeds rather than doing the will of God. So again, I'm not here this morning to convince you that you're saved or to convince you that you're not saved, right? But all I'm here this morning is to look at God's Word and let His Word and His Spirit convict you or encourage you. That's between you and God, right? I don't know your heart. You know your heart. God knows your heart. And if we're honest, God knows your heart better than you do. But I want to take some time and ask the question. So last week, what does a church that's pleasing to God look like? This week, I want to look at what does a church member that's pleasing to God look like? But more specifically, what does a Christian that's pleasing to God look like? How are we supposed to act? 
And today's sermon, it's going to be more thematic. It's not going to be, let's just look at one text and break it down. I don't normally like preaching this way on Sunday mornings, but I feel like there's a, there's a reason for this this morning. So if you have your Bible, there's going to be a lot of Bible drills, if you know what that is, just like flipping around really quick to verses, and I'll try to give you some time to get there. Uh, but we're going to be looking at a bunch of passages. We're not going to go super deep into them. Uh, there is a time for that, but it won't be for this morning, or else we'll be here for hours. Um, so a Christian that's pleasing to God. If you have your notes, the first point is this. A Christian that's pleasing to God is fully committed. Fully committed. And what are we fully committed to? Three things. Jesus, the Gospel, and His church. Christ's church. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. It's really easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. I think about a year ago, Keith preached on the seven churches um, in Revelation chapter 2, 3, and, and 2 and 3. But we're going to be looking at what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, just two verses. We're going to see how Jesus feels about them. Revelation 3, 15, 16. He says this about the church. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In Revelation 3, we see how Jesus responds to a church that what? Is lukewarm. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're in the middle. They're lukewarm. What does he do? He spits them out of his mouth in disgust. All because, why? He knows their works. He knows their hearts. They're not fully devoted. Jesus is not interested in lukewarm followers who praise his name one day, and then when the going gets tough, they, they run away, and they're like, oh, I, can't, I can't handle this. It's too much for me. I'm going away. He's interested in genuine, fully committed followers. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see times where people are unable to follow Jesus because they're not willing to surrender everything to Christ. I think of the young rich ruler. He went away sorrowful because Jesus said what? Sell all your possessions and follow me. Now that wasn't, that's not a call for all of us as Christians to say, okay, so Jesus wants us to be homeless, we've got to sell everything. But what Jesus was doing was revealing the idol in this man's heart. The man said, I've kept all of the commandments since my youth, Jesus. I've never sinned against God. And Jesus is like, you know what? Sell everything and follow me. And it revealed the idol, possessions, money, his wealth was an idol, and he couldn't follow Jesus. He wasn't able to surrender that over and follow Jesus. And he goes away sad. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Again, Jesus is interested in fully committed followers. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, we see that there's a cost to follow Jesus. Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said to Jesus, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what we see here is Jesus is saying there's a cost 
to following Jesus. From these verses, what these people that are coming up to Jesus, we see that it might require giving up security and comfort. Right? He says, you're not going to have a place to lay your head. You'll be homeless. We see it might, give up, it might cost giving up family, giving up friends. It requires a full dependence and full following of Jesus, a full surrender with no plan B. You're all in. And many Christians in America, we, we've simply made Jesus our co-pilot. I don't know if you've seen that bumper sticker or that magnet or that mug, you know, says, Jesus is my co-pilot. All right, at first it's like, okay, that sounds nice. But when we honestly look at Scripture, God's Word demands that Jesus is the only pilot. That we're not equal with Him. We're not equal in the cockpit with Him. We're in the back of the plane sitting there like this. Trusting in you, Jesus. I'm trusting in you. Please guide me. Please guide me. So, number one, a Christian that's pleasing to God is what? Fully committed to Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. He doesn't want lukewarm followers. It disgusts him so much that it's the metaphor of drinking something and it's so vile or eating something that you spit it out of your mouth in disgust. The second thing that we should be fully committed to is the gospel. Turn a little bit before to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Same chapter, Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus says this, And he said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Christians committed to the gospel, we've counted the cost. We've decided what? To deny ourselves take up our cross and to follow Jesus. To take up our cross is a call to surrender, to die to ourselves. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. And sometimes preachers, and I'm including myself, I'm guilty of this, we sometimes we make the gospel like a little add-on moment at the end of the sermon where it's like, okay, I just preached through everything, and, I, and the gospel didn't really fit, so I'll just throw it in at the end there to make sure I get it in there and, and you know, have a little check mark there. I'm guilty of that. And I think at that time, a lot of seasoned Christians or, or older Christians or Christians who have been to church forever, we tend to check out. We're like, okay, here comes the gospel moment. That means we're praying soon. That means we leave and we get to eat lunch soon. But again, it's important to not check out when you hear the gospel. The gospel reminds us of a few things, three things. If you want to write these down under point B, the gospel reminds us of the seriousness of our sin, our hopeless spiritual condition, and God's grace. So the gospel reminds us of the seriousness of our sin, our hopeless spiritual condition, and God's amazing grace. Oftentimes we have a high view of ourselves because we end up, what, comparing ourselves to other people. I might say, man, listen... Compared to Hitler, I'm an angel. I'm a saint. Or, man, compared to my neighbor who yells at his wife all day, I'm a pretty good husband. Or, oh, compared to, I don't know, Josh, oh, I'm, I'm so much better than Josh. Or compared to Mr. Harvey, oh, look at me. You know, We often compare ourselves to other people and it builds up our pride, it builds up our egos, and we say, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. My, my sin is just little. God, God's not going to not like my sin. He, he's going to put up with it because I'm not as bad as this person. Many times when you ask people this question, do you think you're a good person? They respond with this. Yes, absolutely. I'm a good person. 
But again, let's stop comparing ourselves to others and compare ourselves to what? To God's Word. I love what Ray Comfort does. He's an evangelist. He has a YouTube series. He has a ministry, Living, uh, Living Waters, I believe. And he has these videos on YouTube where he preaches the Gospel and he always starts them with this. Do you think you're a good person? And the people always smile like, yeah, I'm pretty good. And what he does is he says, okay, well, let's compare yourself to God's law. Let's just take the Ten Commandments. So he'll go through them. He'll say, have you ever told a lie before? And they say, yeah. And he says, what does that make you? And they say, it makes me a liar. He says, okay. He says, have you ever stolen anything before? And the people are like, yeah, I have. He says, what does that make you? And they say, it makes me a thief. He says, wrong. It makes you a lying thief. And then he, gets to the, he goes more and more. He says, have you ever used God's name as a curse word? And people say, yeah. And he says, would you ever use your mom's name as a curse word? And they say, no. He's like, why? Because you have a deep love and respect towards your mom. When you use God's, word as a, as God's name as a curse word, it's a lack of respect. It's blasphemous. So he says, based on what you've confessed to me, he says, you're a lying thief who's a blasphemer. He says, if you stand before God on Judgment Day based on the Ten Commandments, his moral standard to, to humanity, guilty or innocent before the judge. And the people always say, guilty. Right? And what he does is he breaks down their wall to get them to understand the seriousness of our sin. And then it goes to the next step, right? the hopeless condition. He says the problem is we cannot save ourselves. How can I, as a guilty, condemned sinner who's, who's dirty before God, who's unrighteous, who's, who's not clean, how can I get into God's presence, into His glory, as, a, as he's a holy, sinless, eternal, perfect God? The answer is, I can't. By myself, I can't. That's the hopelessness of our spiritual condition, which again brings us to the last part, God's amazing grace. The beauty of the Gospel is that we're reminded that we have a God who pursued us, a God who came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for our sins. He, he lived, Jesus Christ lived the life we all try to, but we all fail to. A perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross bearing our sin, bearing our shame, purchasing us with His death. He died what we deserve. He died in my place for my sin. In 1 Peter 3.8, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter saying Christ died once for all as the eternal sacrifice, the eternal Lamb on the cross. He's the righteous who died for me, the unrighteous, for us, the unrighteous. That what? He might bring us to God. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German theologian, he has a pretty interesting story. He actually sidetrack a little bit. He, he was involved with a, he tried to assassinate Hitler. He has a pretty interesting um, biography. However, he's a theologian, and I'm like, I don't know if that's moral, morally good or evil, I don't know about, but he has a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he has a phrase in that that he talks about. He says, Christians try to make God's grace cheap. He calls it cheap grace. And what that means is we want all the blessing, we want all the benefit that comes from Jesus dying on the cross, 
but we don't want to do all of the work that's required. Meaning, we don't want to pick up our cross. We don't want to surrender to ourselves. We don't want to make Jesus our Lord and Savior. We just want all the blessings that come with it. We want the eternal relationship, the forgiveness of sins without repentance. And he calls that cheap grace. And the gospel, right? Why should we be committed to the gospel? The gospel reminds us that God's grace is costly. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. We sh- and we should be living our lives as Christians, following Jesus even when it becomes costly, because it will become costly for us. I hope and I pray that we never forget the Bible says we were bought with a price. So a Christian fully committed to Jesus, a total surrender, no plan B, we're all in. Same when it comes to the gospel. Fully committed. Why? It reminds us who we are and who God is and what He has done for us. And the last thing we should be fully committed to is Christ's church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses a metaphor between a wife and a husband to explain the mystery between Jesus Christ and His relationship with the church. He says that Christ is the head of the church the same as the husband is the head of the wife or the head of the household. He says the church is the bride of Christ and that he gave himself up for her the same as the husband or I guess the the wife is the bride of the husband but the husband should be having a sacrificial love for our wives. He also says that the church is the body of Christ. So Paul uses three metaphors. Christ is the head of the church Uh, The church is Christ's bride, and the church is the body of Christ. And I think what we do is sometimes we make church about the building. When we think of, oh, I'm going to church. Oh, I go to New Village Church. We make it all about the building, but we have to get that out of our head. We're all members of his body. Where you go with another believer, that's church. Where you go and have fellowship, that is church. That is called out ones gathering together for fellowship. Now, that's not an excuse to go home and say, well, I'm with my wife, so we're skipping church today because we're at church at home. I'll touch on that a little bit later. But are we fully committed to Christ's church? We need to remember that the church demonstrates the love of God clearly and boldly, or should, to those around, to those who watch. Are we committed to Christ's bride? You cannot be a follower of Christ and be disconnected from his body. David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, he uses a metaphor. He says this, Christians like to say, you know, I love Jesus, but I just, I can't find a church that I like. I actually don't really, I don't really like going to that church. I'm not a big fan of it, but, but Jesus, I love Jesus. And David Platt says that's similar to going before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I love you so much, but I don't like your bride. I'm not a fan of your bride. Now, do you think Jesus would take that as a compliment? It's the same as if someone said, David, I love you, you're amazing, you're wonderful, but Stephanie, I I can't stand her. And you think I'd be like, wow, thanks so much for that nice compliment, that was so lovely. No, you just insulted my wife, my bride. Why do we sometimes treat the church that way, Christ's bride that way? I'm guilty of it. I think instead of complaining about church, about the bride of Christ, his body, we should allow the Holy Spirit to lead us to do something about it. Throughout the New Testament, it's, it's mentioned about 59 times we're commanded to one another. Just a few examples. 
love one another, be devoted to one another, build one another up, serve one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, be patient with one another, bear one another's burdens. How are we doing with that? To be devoted to Christ's church is, is, is to follow His command to do one another, to be in one another. Also, and I mentioned this last week, in order to, to do one another, you have to be with another. Being devoted to Christ's church is to also be actively in fellowship together. Hebrews chapter 10, and this is where I said you can't just say, oh, I'm at, at church because I'm at home with my wife and my family. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. There's the command, the one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the author tells us, how do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together, as is, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Christians, as a body of believers, there should be an excitement when God's people gather together for fellowship and to praise God. Members of Christ's body coming together to worship their Lord and their Savior, it just reminds me of that picture of Revelation chapter 4, just the multitude of, of, of just the praising of God's name. Holy, holy, holy. And my question is this. Have we lost our devotion and our joy in being in fellowship, in being fully committed to Christ's body? David Platt says this in his book in the same chapter. He says, Biblically, a church does not consist of people who simply park and participate in programs alongside one another. Instead, the church is comprised of people who share the life of Christ with each other on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. There was a church that said something, and it really struck me uh, up until now. I was like, eh, maybe, but it really, I was like, okay, I can see what they're saying. They said, we're not a church that does ministry together. We're a church that does life together. A church that does life together. And when I think of that, I think of a church that's a family, a church that they're, they're together, there's unity, they're serving one another, they're doing life together. They're not treating Christ's body as a once-a-week thing where you have to go out of obligation. Right? You could, oh, good morning, how are you? Oh, what time is it? I can't wait. Is he almost done with the sermon? All right, let's go, I've got to eat. Again, a Christian that's pleasing to God is fully committed to Jesus, the gospel, and his body. The second thing is this. A Christian that's pleasing to God continues to grow spiritually. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. A Christian pleasing to God continues to grow spiritually. Ephesians 3, verse 12. The last time I preached this, it was, I believe it was the first or second week of COVID lockdown. So it brings back some, some bad memories. But um, I was all alone with my iPad. We've, I don't know, it's, just, it's funny to look at that. But I preached on this a few years ago. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are what mature think this way, 
And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So here we have Paul saying, don't think that I've already made it. And what does that it mean? Sanctification, being exactly, perfectly like Christ. Don't think that I've already made it or that I'm perfect, but Paul says, I still, I, I strain and I press forward. I'm, I'm running the race without looking behind. And throughout the New Testament, Paul, over and over, he uses an, an analogy of running a race to describe our Christian faith or our Christian life. It's this, this word sanctification. It's, it means a continual process of becoming more and more holy or more and more like Jesus. And as Christians, we're never sanctified on earth. We're sanctified when we die and we stand before Christ and we're in paradise with him. Then we're perfectly like Christ with him in fellowship. This means what? Our sanctification is a lifelong process. Sometimes we're like, all right, I know everything about the Bible says. I memorized the, I'm, this is an extreme. I memorized the whole Bible. I never have to read it again. Right? You get content with your faith. You're like this, okay. I guess I learned everything there is to know about an infinite, a holy, a perfect God. One reason that we should be continuing to grow spiritually is because we should want to be more like Christ. We should desire, we should want to be more like Christ. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and, and gives us a new heart that longs for us to be like Jesus. Again, we should be growing because why? We want to. Not because we have to or are forced to, but because we want to. And just bear with me with this weird analogy. Let's just pretend for a moment, let's rewind time, I was dating Stephanie. Right? Let's just pretend I'm dating Stephanie. I love hanging out with her. I spend every waking possible moment with her. We have the best relationship. You know, every single hour of the day or minute, we're in constant conversation. And then we get engaged. We get married. It's a beautiful ceremony. We say the I do's. And then as soon as we get married, we don't talk anymore. And maybe you're like, David, why don't you talk to your wife anymore? And maybe I would say, well, what else is there to do? I made it. That's it. I, I, I spent all my time with her, and now we're married, now we're committed, and, and what else is there to learn about her? Nothing. I know everything there is to know about her. You, you'd say, that's, that's crazy. That's not a good relationship. And in the same way, we shouldn't give up growing in our faith, growing in our relationship with Jesus, just because we think we made it. Again, don't get justification and sanctification mixed up. Justification is the one-time Saving grace of God, right? When sinners who are unrighteous are made righteous. It's a one-time thing at salvation. Justification is a lifelong process of continual growth. Think of it as going up ladder or going upstairs. Some days you might go up three stairs, and then you might go down a stair or two the next day. Right? It's a constant, hopefully, upward growth towards Jesus. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On, on his law he meditates day and night. So for the author, he what? He delights. It's a joy to be in God's word, to meditate the law of God. There's joy when he remembers it day and night. And for us, do we delight in the Word of God? Or are we just content where we're at? Do we know everything that there is to know? And, and, we're, and we're fine with that. The deeper our knowledge of God's Word, the more we'll understand how good and how loving God is. 
one preacher said this, if you're bored with your faith, so is God. If you're bored with your faith, so is God. Another reason, right, so one reason why we should be growing spiritually is because we want to. We genuinely want to grow deeper in our love and our relationship with Jesus. And the other reason why we should, and they're, they're multiple, but I want to focus on these two, we need to be able to discern truth from error. Fact or truth, God's truth from Satan's lies. If you're in Ephesians still, hopefully turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is what Paul writes. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So according to Paul in just these verses, why should we be growing in our faith? So that we're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. And I picture uh, picking up a leaf or a blade of of grass and throwing it in the wind. Where does it go? It goes wherever the wind brings it. There's no foundation. So if as Christians, if we hear something over here, we're like, oh, I like that. That's something nice. And if we hear another preacher over here says something that contradicts, oh, I like that. That's a nice... Paul even says it's like being tossed to and fro in, in the ocean. You're just in a raft. You're, you're unable to control where you're going. You just go wherever the current brings you. He says in that same way, we should be maturing to avoid living our life that way. Also, he says, so that we're not tricked by false teachers. Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus saying, beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers. In every single New Testament epistle, except two or three, there's a warning against false teaching. I think it's important that we be aware that false teachers do exist. So, don't be carried about, having no control, no foundation. Don't be tricked. But he also says this, that we might become more like Christ. Verse 11, until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to what? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I told you we'll be flipping around a lot. Hebrews chapter 5. It's a little bit after Ephesians. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Hebrews 5, verse 11. We read something similar to this. Hebrews 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author is saying, because you've checked out, you've become dull to hearing, you're not listening, you've become content. He says, you ought to be teachers by now, being able to teach God's word, but you're not able to. You're, You're a child. You need someone to come in to teach you God's law once again. God's commands again. 
He uses the analogy of milk and solid food. And again, from this, we shouldn't be happy with being in the milk. In verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And then he says, if you're in solid food, if you're mature, you'll be able to discern between Satan and, and, and God, evil and good, lies and truth. And in a few weeks, Stephanie and I are going to have a baby girl. And like the rest of humanity, she will naturally progress in what she can eat, right? Milk, baby foods, or, or mush, I should say, and then solid food. Now, how weird it would be, imagine if I invited you over for lunch today. So come on over, I'll order a pizza. Oh, great, I'll be there. And we go and we're gathered around the, around the table, and I said, all right, let's pray for the food. And all of a sudden, I hand out pizza, and then I said, I'll be right back. And Stephanie comes back with a jar of baby food and a spoon, and she starts feeding me. You'd be like, David, what are you doing eating that? I'd be like, what? I, I, it's baby food. I, I, I can't eat that pizza. I'm not ready for that yet. You, you'd look at me like, okay, this is a little strange. Right? But sometimes when we make God's word about that, right? when we live our faith or our lives like that, we don't view it that way. Some of us are content with the milk. All we want to know is, okay, yeah, Jesus loves me. He has a plan for my life. He died on the cross for my sins. That's it. Now, those are all spiritually good things to know, right? But if that's all you know, and I think you missed the, the reason behind why Jesus came and died on the cross. You missed the depth of his love. Again, we should be striving to be on solid food, not being content in the milk. And how do we do that? By growing in our relationship with Christ by attending fellowships together, by, by listening to sermons, by reading God's Word, by praying, by studying it, looking at commentaries, but praying and asking the Spirit to reveal truths about His Word, by spending time in His Word, devoted. C.S. Lewis said this, and, and you've probably heard this quote before. He said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, he's relating us to like a child living in a slum, uh, uh, living in, in, in mud, making mud pies, being content in the mud. And he says, we're far too easily pleased that when Jesus comes and offers us a holiday at the sea, something better, something infinitely better, we say, nah, it's okay, Jesus, I'm okay here making my mud pies. That's okay, I, I'm okay right here. I think it speaks a lot of truth to, to how distracted we can get in the world, how the world does pull us away from God's word. And as Christians, we should be growing in our faith. Why? Because we want to, but the second is to also to be able to discern truth and error. A Christian that's pleasing to God continues to grow spiritually, wants to be with Jesus, wants to know everything there is, wants to be like Christ. And the last thing I want to say this morning is this, number three. A Christian that pleases God humbly serves. A Christian that pleases God humbly serves. 
It isn't enough to just serve one another and to serve Christ, but we need to do it with the right heart attitude. More than anything else, God cares about our hearts. In Micah chapter 6, Micah goes on this list of what will please the Lord. Is it a thousand rams? Is it, is it the quantity of what I have to give to God? Is it the quality that I bring to God? And at the end of that, we can summarize it with this. God desires our hearts. It's the motive behind why or what we give to God. In Isaiah 23, Jesus echoed this to the Pharisees. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then in Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus giving a parable between a, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it starts with the parable by saying this. Jesus was talking to the, to the Pharisees, talking to the people who were prideful and were showing contempt to other people. He was talking to the self-righteous. And he has two people set up. He has a Pharisee going to the temple to worship and a tax collector going to the temple to worship. And the Pharisee, he's, he's, he's in the middle. He says, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like the sinful tax collector. You know me, I fast twice a week, which is above what the law required. You know me, Jesus, I tithe on everything. You know me, God, I, I tithe everything that I have. Right? He's, he's relying and he's proclaiming his self-righteousness to God. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector is far off, wouldn't even look up to God with a downcast soul and, and heart and head. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, based on these heart attitudes, who went away justified from the temple, made right with God? And he says, the tax collector. Jesus says, the tax collector left justified. Why? Because of his heart. He was humble before God. The Pharisee was righteous or self-righteous, prideful before God. We can show up to every single Sunday service, every single work day, every single fellowship, every Christmas tea, every youth group, every uh, praise and prayer time, but it doesn't mean anything if we have the wrong heart attitude. And this just this came to me, it's not my notes, but there have been times early on when, when Stephanie and I were married, there were times where we, we fought on Sunday mornings, right before church. I'm like, you, I was like, selfishly, I'm like, why can't you just hold this in until after church? Don't you know that I have to lead worship, right? And what we would do is, for the, a couple of times, we, we led worship while we're angry with each other or while we were still upset with each other. And those were the most disastrous Sunday morning worships I can remember. Why? Because my heart was not in it. My heart was not in it. I can be up here and just sing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down it. And I can be far away. I could pretend, but sometimes, or early on in our marriage, I didn't have the joy. I was angry. And rightfully so, God wasn't pleased with that. Now before Sundays, and maybe this is something we can all do as a church, I take some time to confess my sins before God. Sometimes we, we forget that we're commanded to do that, right? Come before God with a clean or a pure heart. We're not perfect, but God, this is what I've done. This is what I'm thinking. Take this from me. I surrender it to you. Make me clean as I preach your word, as I, as I sing your word, as I lead. Again, you can do the right thing with the wrong motive, and God will always call it sin, you can do the right thing with the wrong motive. God will always call it sin. So what is our motivation to serve others? What should fuel us? It should be the gospel. 
We serve others because why? Christ has served us. As Christ emptied Himself, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, of His authority and He served us, He washed His disciples' feet, we are to empty ourselves of any pride, of any entitlement, and to humbly put others and serve them first. Not only are we commanded to serve others and do it with a joyful heart, but God's Word tells us that we've all received a spiritual gift from God to use to serve one another and to serve Christ. Each time that spiritual gifts are mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament, they're immediately connected to serving others in the body. I'm going to list up some verses here. If you want to write them down, you can look at them later. But Romans 12, verse 7. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use those gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Ephesians 4, what we just read earlier, 11, for the building up of the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.10, as each receive the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As I mentioned last week, is New Village Church a church that's made up of servants? Are we using the gifts that God has given us to build His body? Being part of a local church is important because we're also commanded to, uh, well, we're commanded to serve one another, and guess what? God has given us everything we need to serve each other. So all we have to do is just show up. There shouldn't be an excuse like, well, it's, I'm not qualified. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. Let us teach you. Come with a humble heart, a, a heart that's desiring to learn, a willing heart that says, here I am, Lord, use me. And on the flip side of that, if God has given each one of us a gift and we don't use it, what does that tell God about what we think about His gift? Eh, that's, thanks for the gift, but I'm, I don't, I'm not going to use it. Thanks for the gift, but the, the, church, the church doesn't need me. Your body doesn't need me. I don't, I don't need it. Again, we've been supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit, been giving, given a gift to serve Christ, but to serve one another. And as we look at these three attributes that please God, right, the three things, fully committed, growing spiritually, humbly serving, we can boil it down to one phrase. And I'm wrapping up soon. Faith causes us to act. And I said this last week. Faith causes us to act. Faith in Christ will cause us to be full committed followers of Him, to His gospel, to His church. Our faith in Christ will cause us to grow spiritually. It'll cause us to want to open up our Bible. It'll cause us to want to pray before God. Faith in Christ will cause us to serve one another with a humble heart. In order to serve somebody, you've got to do something. Again, faith causes us to act. Initially, as I was doing my sermon prep, I had five points I wanted to go through. So it mirrored last week's sermon by five points. But... For the sake of time, I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop those last two out and I'm going to save them for next week. And next week, we're going to be looking at that we're reminded by James to not just be hearers of the Word, but to be doers of the Word. Does your faith cause you to act? Or are you just sitting, as I said last week, on the bench watching the team play and joyfully sitting out and going like this, yay, good job team, you're doing great without me, you don't need me. Our time on earth is so limited. We think it's long. 
right? Some of us, we, we think we're promised 80, 90, 100 years if we're lucky, right? But in James, he tells us we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Our life is so fragile. It's like when you breathe out your breath when it's cold and you, and you see the, the, your, your breath. It's there one moment and then it, dis, it dissipates, it disappears. Likewise, our time on earth is so limited when we compare it to eternity that our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our community can't afford to not hear the gospel. And next week I'm ending this series with a two-fold challenge. The challenge is, what's next? What do we do next? After seeing how a church pleasing to God looks like, how a Christian pleasing to God looks like, what are we supposed to do? I'll give you a sneak peek. One, make disciples. And two, never quit. Don't give up. And I'm just going to end with this. There, uh, listen, I'm, I'm not up here perfect. Surprise, I'm not. There are times where I think God has open doors and, and put people in the way where I have to tell them about Jesus. And sometimes I'm like this, la, 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 la. I don't want to tell you about Jesus. It's too scary. I don't, I don't know. What, what am I going to tell them? What if they judge me? What if they don't like it? Right? Sometimes we, we have this view. It's like we don't want to make disciples because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to make disciples because we, we don't want to, to look like a fool or be one of those, those Christian, uh, those, those uh, Jesus freaks. Right? But but Jesus' command, his last command while he was on earth was to what? Make disciples. And we'll see by the Apostle Paul's life to never quit. If anybody had a reason to quit, I would look at Paul's life and say, oh yeah, Paul, take a little bit of a sabbatical. You deserve it. Shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, in jail, in prison, tortured. You deserve it. But he never gave up. And I want that to be our, our, our challenge as we're in this season right now as a church family, as we're here together. Right? Jesus had 12 faithful followers. And he made disciples who made disciples. Our church, I'm looking, we have more than 12. We're, we're ahead of it, right? Are we a church that's making disciples who then go and make disciples? I can preach the gospel and you can bring your friends in and they can hear God's word and they can hear the gospel from me. I'm one person. If I, and if the elders and if the leaders, if we train everybody in here to be disciple makers, it's not one person making disciples. It's a church going out and making disciples. So I want to encourage us. Take a look at our faith, at our life. Let God's Word convict us, encourage us. Are we fully committed to Jesus, to the Gospel, to His church? Are we continuing to grow spiritually? And are we serving with a humble heart? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much that your word is true, that your word is, is, is faithful, that we can trust it. I pray, Lord, that we allow the Spirit to convict us, to encourage us, to equip us, to bring us joy in serving you. God, I pray that we never forget the gospel. That's at the center of everything. Why do we make disciples? Because we remember the gospel, how much we're loved, and we should be sharing that love of Christ to our neighbors that we're commanded to. I pray, Lord, just for our church and for everybody here this morning, I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, these words don't leave with us. Or let me rephrase that. I pray that as we leave here, these words do leave with us, and we remember them throughout the week. And I pray that as we read in Psalm chapter 1, that we can meditate on your word day and night, and it can be a delight for us. Not a burden, but a delight. 
We thank You, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. I pray that You take any pride from our heart. Lord, pride is the enemy of humility. James says, humble ourselves before You. So I pray that we can do that. We can humbly be servants and humbly be disciples who go out and make disciples. I'm thankful for Your church. I'm thankful for Your Word. I'm thankful for our, our, our church body together. And we love You, Jesus. We thank You so much for everything You've given us. In Your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.